Welcome to FinTech in Focus, where our mission is to celebrate the talent and ideas that contribute to the global B2B payments industry. I'm Rob Bensick, a longtime sales director at CorePay, and you're listening to this week's segment, Narrative Shift, a quarterly market outlook. As markets shift, corporate treasurers and CFOs need to keep up, so there's a lot to talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback and suggestions, so please email us at podcast at corepay.com. Today, I'm speaking with Carl Shimada and Karthik Shankaran of the CorePay Cross-Border Currency Research Team to discuss what we can expect from currency markets in the short term and coming into Q3. We've got lots to unpack here, so let's get started. Through the first half of 2022, the biggest economic and political issue, not just in the US, but around the world, has been the huge run-up of inflation and the fear that we will repeat the experience of the 1970s, keeping in mind our monetary policy is quite different from the Keynesian Nixonomics of the late 70s. Carl, what are your thoughts on this? Right. So, you know, it, it's clearly a, an enormous issue. Uh, it impacts, you know, consumers, businesses. It impacts how we plan for the future. It's, you know, a probably the, the biggest issue that uh, that the global economy has faced in a very, very long time. Um, but of course, we are in a very different world, as you alluded to there. Uh, in the 70s, you know, we had a situation where spending on tangible goods uh, made up a very large portion of household spending. And, and today, that is no longer the case. If you look at, you know, every Everything from food to energy to manufactured products, all of those things have fallen in price relative to household incomes. And so more money is being spent on other things. And, and so what that means is that, you know, rising prices have a smaller impact on what happens at a household level. That's a very um, good point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, supply chains, uh, including for oil, are far more diversified. Uh, you know, the, the chokehold that OPEC had on the global economy back in the 70s is no longer uh, the case. Um, and then the other big factor, I think, that, that has really changed is that workers are not organized in the same way. Um, you know, large unions in the 70s were in a position to demand higher prices or higher wages when prices rose. So, you know, they had what they call the wage price spiral of the 70s. Um, that is very, very unlikely to be repeated today. However, all of that said, uh, the political implications are obviously extremely profound. Uh, people absolutely hate it when prices rise, <laughs> um, as, we've, as, as we've seen in, in uh, recent months. So we're very likely to see a round of political unrest in the emerging markets. We know that the Democrats in the U.S. are in trouble, um, you know, very much as a as a consequence of, of rising prices. European leaders are very likely to come under pressure to provide stimulus here, um, you know, to essentially shelter households and businesses from the impact of higher prices. And ultimately, central bankers are going to get blamed for getting this wrong, uh, and they could see their independence challenged. So, you know, you're looking at a very different economy, um, and you're looking at a very different set of implications for markets in the months ahead. Interesting, because you'd mentioned OPEC as well and how that's not affecting what's happening as much as it did in the 70s. Of course, we are still seeing a big jump in the price of oil. Do you want to just touch on that briefly? Sure, yeah. So one of the biggest changes here has been the rise of the United States itself as a, a huge producer of, uh, of oil for the global economy. Uh, Karthik talks about this all the time, uh, the, the fact that, uh, you know, that this shale revolution in the U.S. has dramatically shifted uh, where oil comes from in the world. And so to some extent, uh, OPEC is no longer the monopoly producer that it once was. Uh, to some extent, it is being counterbalanced by investment in the US. However, that investment has not 
grown as much as we might have expected given where prices are. Um, I don't know if Karthik, if you want to touch on that. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, I think one of the things that's happened in the, U in the US uh, energy industry is uh, what the industry is calling capital discipline. They're not going to be spending a lot of money just because the experience of a lot of the producers that followed uh, the shale revolution, which was very good, in which which was very beneficial to the dollar to the U.S. balance of trade, uh, it took a lot of pressure off oil prices. But investors lost at least a trillion dollars on that, so there's a uh, a reluctance to to reengage. It's also possible that um, uh, worries about what climate change means for the long run demand for oil is another factor that's influencing that's in, that's influencing that's influencing investment. The one other point I just want to make on the politics of inflation is that I think economists and kind of regular people have different ideas, different expectations of what it means for inflation to go down. For an economist, it means prices do not keep going up at the same rate as they did before or that the rate of increase goes down, households might tend to see this more as a matter of levels. You know, if gas is still $7 a barrel next year in California, um, the inflation rate on gasoline has gone to zero. It's not going to feel like that to a lot of people. It's going to take some time for people to adopt that, that, that point of view. So I think that feeds Understood. back into the politics. Understood. Now, Karthik, more recently, we've had these worries be succeeded by the opposite fear that the U.S. economy is going to fall into a recession. Do you think these fears are realistic? I think they're realistic, but uh, at least at this point, I think they are somewhat overstated. Uh, and I'd emphasize these somewhat. I mean, they, it could happen. And the Fed itself has emphasized that this is a real possibility. But um, for the U.S. itself, I think what we're seeing is a shift potentially in the housing market because you've had a very large run up in mortgage rates, which is uh, cooling some construction. And along, along with that, you've also had this very large buildup in household durable goods. Uh, inventories are high. They're high in apparel. I got a pair of jeans 75% off this week. <laughs> you know, very exciting. So there's definitely a cooling in the good sector of the economy. The flip side to that is that the services sector is doing much better. And you can kind of see this in sentiment surveys where manufacturing orders and employment are down, but the services sector still looks pretty robust. I think something else to keep in mind here is that household balance sheets, especially among the poorest Americans, are much more robust. Uh, there's just a lot of savings as a result of the uh, very large stimulus, the very large payments that went out during the pandemic and right after. And that was originally one of the things that was blamed for contributing to the inflation. But now it gives people a buffer to absorb higher prices and potentially to continue spending on other things. The other point I'd make is that uh, the actual activity of businesses uh, seems somewhat less despondent than their sentiment surveys would suggest. You can see this in durable goods orders. Factory orders are doing pretty well. You know, there are obviously pockets of the economy where uh, there are there's much more gloom in the business community, the technology sector in my immediate neighborhood uh, on the West Coast being one of them. But corporate conference calls in general have not been anywhere near as gloomy as, as one might think if you were going into recession. So realistic, but um, 
I think also avoidable. You need stuff to go right, but. Understood, understood. And it's funny that you'd mentioned you'd made a comment about getting a, a, a pair of jeans for 75% off because a lot of companies are looking at new ways to try and cut back on their expenses. I was reading a very interesting article the other day about how a number of large retailers are actually telling the people that they're giving a refund to on a product to simply keep the product because they don't want it back. Yep. So I guess my next question, and Carl, I'll kind of direct this over in your direction. This has been a terrible year thus far for asset markets. Mark, not just by a sharp sell-off in equities and in bonds, but also there's a just a much higher level of volatility. What's been driving this and, and how long do you foresee this going on? Or do you see any events, be it intentional or unintentional, causing a change, a, a significant inflection point? Right. So, you know, spectacular levels of volatility in a lot of asset classes this year. Uh, you know, treasury markets in particular have seen some of the biggest moves in, in, in the histor- historical record. Uh, absolutely remarkable moves. Um, now, I think fundamentally what's going on here, though, is that, uh, you know, the, the seeds were planted for this long ago. Um, unrealistic assumptions were embedded in markets after the pandemic. Um, and, you know, those fundamentally came down to the idea that, uh, that you know, global price levels were going to remain stable, that the Fed was going to keep money really, really cheap, uh, that consumers were going to keep spending money on durable goods, uh, incomes would remain high and that retail investors were going to keep pouring money into, you know, sort of highly speculative vehicles, everything from, you know, tech stocks to to Bitcoin, right? And all of that sort of fell down once we started to see this rise in inflation. Uh, And you're seeing that in the value of Bitcoin big time, yep. That's right, yeah. You know, we've seen a a profound sell-off across many of these asset classes. And it's kind of amusing in a lot of ways uh, because, you know, the the people running the crypto companies are blaming the Fed for, you know, for the... uh, for the decline in asset values. And, and to some extent, it's true. The reality is that as prices rose, uh, as that you know, applied political pressure to, uh, to policymakers around the world, uh, we have seen a tightening in policy, both on the fiscal and the monetary sides. And so all of that is sort of combining to put downward pressure on asset prices. And you know, quite frankly, you know, asset prices do still look overvalued from a historical perspective. And so more pain does seem inevitable. Uh, the only question that we really have to think about right now is whether you know, that pain comes in the next quarter. Uh, one of the things that you know, I think Karthik and I were really uh, thinking about right now is if we do see central banks and you know, fiscal policymakers sort of take a step back and, and stop tightening it to the rate that they are doing today, uh, we could see a brief period in which we see sort of outperformance in markets where markets stage sort of a bear market bounce. And you know, we do expect that to potentially happen here in, in the next couple of months, perhaps around the, the Fed meeting in, in, uh, in July, or perhaps in September when they meet again and they have a lot of data to look at. So you know, really, a lot of this does hinge on where the Fed is going to go. Uh, but at the end of the day, the era of outperformance in financial assets relative to the real economy is likely drawing to a close. Thanks, Carl. I appreciate that. That's uh, insightful for sure. I'm going to segue over to the big dollar to the greenback. Uh, it's been exceptionally strong in this environment, reaching levels last seen 20 years ago against some of the majors. Karthik, what do you think is behind that? And and do you think it's going to continue? Yeah, I mean, the dollar has been a superstar this year. And, you know, it's had uh, 
it's kind of had a triple boost, right? Because you've had, you know, a U.S. economy that had rebounded more strongly than other portions of the world, uh, an inflation problem that was much more uh, wide ranging. So, uh, you know, so, so more hawkish Fed. And then in the immediate aftermath of the war in Ukraine and the, and the issues with global energy prices, you had this feature of the shale revolution kick in because the U.S. now, uh, very much unlike how it was in the 1970s or even in the early 2000s, is essentially self-sufficient in oil, which means that even if oil prices go up and that might hit consumption, it might hit sentiment at the margin, it doesn't hit the U.S. balance of payments anywhere near as much as it did years ago, right? We're not having these gigantic petroleum-driven deficits that we did in the past, while Germany and Japan and all these countries that used to run monster trade surpluses are now falling into deficits. So this kind of trifecta of rates, growth, and energy, and being an energy safe haven, all of which worked really well for the dollar. Now, is that going to continue and how long is it going to continue? That is the million uh, dollar question, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. And I think I, this goes back to what Carl was saying. We think, you know, this quarter may be something of an inflection point there. You know, we have the, the Fed meetings in July and September. And in between, there's this annual conclave of the, of the world central bankers in lovely Jackson Hole in Wyoming, where they talk about policy. These are all kind of important signals. But one of the things I'd mentioned is that you have seen commodity prices come off pretty sharply with these uh, recession worries. That kind of does take away a bit of you know, the oil boost that's been supporting the dollar. It's also possible that we are in a point where expectations of what the Fed is going to do get, recalib get recalibrated. And the Fed's still very focused on inflation. But at some point over the next quarter, we think it's quite possible that the, both the Fed and the market get comfortable with the idea that the Fed has, that the end of the tightening cycle is in sight, which also takes away some of the dollar steam. And, and obviously, you know, what happens in Europe and Russia is, is, is a big question. But one of the things that is happening is there's a bit more optimism on where China is going with its economy, which does have implications for other portions of the world that are exposed to the to the Chinese economy as well, and potentially take some another safe haven start from the dollar. So, completely so, understood. And I mean, it's a difficult position to to try to forecast that with so much uncertainty. Obviously, China's uh, economy is is pretty deeply tied to the Russian economy, and with what's going on in Russia, it leaves a lot of question marks. Uh, let's uh, move to the U.S.'s northern neighbor, Canada. Uh, it obviously shares a lot of similarities, but also important differences with the U.S. Uh, Carl, if you could maybe walk us through uh, those differences, talk about how you see the Canadian economy and the Canadian dollar performing over the next several months. Right. So, you know, the Canadian uh, the Canadian economy is always reminiscent of the the old joke that uh, if the U.S. Uh, sniffles, then the can then Canada catches cold. Uh, we've seen the opposite dynamic in the post pandemic period. Uh, the Canadian economy has recovered remarkably quickly. Uh, heavy fiscal stimulus easy credit conditions, uh, you know, those helped the Canadian economy to really sort of rebound out of the pandemic. Uh, we saw unemployment snap back very, very quickly. Output uh, essentially got back to pre-pandemic levels uh, remarkably fast. Uh, and, and so all of that was paired with a huge lift in external demand. Uh, so, you know, as U.S. consumers 
increase their spending on durable goods after the pandemic, uh, you know, as they spent sort of the, the Trump and Biden stimulus checks, uh, we saw a big jump in, in exports. We saw a lot of demand coming from the U.S. that helped to support the Canadian economy. And then this year, uh, on top of all of that, we had a big jump in commodity prices. And, you know, this was partially generated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, you know, Canada produces a lot of the same things that Ukraine and Russia produce, uh, but it was also, you know, broadly reflective of what was happening in the global economy. So all of that came, you know, down to, to driving the Bank of Canada into a more hawkish stance. We started to see, you know, more aggressive rate expectations for the, for the Bank of Canada, uh, interest rate expectations began to climb. Um, and all of that was, you would think, something that would lift the loonie. But the reality is we've seen the loonie underperform against the dollar. Um, I would say, you know, there's a couple of possible reasons here. One is, is because CapEx or capital expenditure or investment in the energy sector uh, was perceived as being unlikely to repeat the patterns that we'd seen in, in other cycles. Uh, very much to Karthik's point in our, our earlier discussion, uh, mm -hmm. partially because we had interest rate differentials that remained narrow, uh, mainly because the Bank of Canada was essentially following the Fed in lockstep. Um, but were, I yeah. would say, yeah, I would say the biggest thing here was that we had a tightening in financial conditions. And what that means is, is rising bet, debt costs for the Canadian household sector. So the yeah, Canadian household money sector- isn't free anymore, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the Canadian household sector is among the most indebted on earth, right? So, um, you know, when we when we see interest rates rise, that means that we're very likely to see a drop in consumption. And I think currency traders have been trading on that. However, all of that said, we think we could see a brief period of outperformance in the quarter to come, uh, mainly driven by that idea that rate expectations might come down a bit in the U.S., uh, and remain relatively high in Canada. So we could see the loony grind a couple of cents higher before it ultimately succumbs to those, you know, deeper economic fu fundamentals and, and drags further down. Great. Thanks, Carl. So I'm going to stick with you for a second here uh, and get your thoughts. Like beyond North America, the other giants of the world economy in, in GDP terms, obviously, are China and the EU. Lots of uncertainty in both, um, but let's start with China, where growth's fallen sharply over the first half of the year. What are the big causes behind that, and do you think there's going to be changes in the offing? Sure. So, you know, the zero COVID strategies pursued by authorities in China have unquestionably damaged the, the economic engine there. Uh, so you've seen lower production, you've seen entire, you know, cities and provinces shut down. So travel has been limited. That has meant that we have lower consumer demand and that we have a struggle to meet external demand. In other words, it's more difficult to manufacture goods to ship them uh, out, out of the country and to generate GDP. So, you know, all of that has contributed to the slowdown, but also we've seen a big effort to reduce systemic leverage. So uh, as we've warned for really most, most of the last decade, uh, China has been building up debt at a absolutely spectacular rate across the household and corporate sectors. And so, you know, to some extent, policymakers are trying to take aim at that. They're trying to reduce the amount of stimulus that they put into the economy. And so, you know, this has meant that China has been forging a very different path than those uh, than countries in the West, which, you know, essentially provided stimulus to the to the economy to get out of the uh, pandemic. And then the last thing I think that's kind of important here is that we are seeing a slowdown in goods demand in the West. 
uh, as consumers in the West uh, decide to spend money on services, that is exerting drag on the Chinese economy. Now, in the quarter ahead, we expect all of that to shift a little bit. Uh, so we would expect that, you know, we see a rollback of the COVID zero strategies. Uh, we would expect to see more fiscal spending. If you listen, uh, if you look between the lines at what policymakers in China are saying, uh, they are saying that they intend to boost growth here. But, you know, all of that will happen as we continue to see that rotation and consumer preferences in the rest of the world. Okay. So we, we think the renminbi is likely to, to move up from where it is today, but we think that's going to be capped by the by that uh, sort of worsening external picture here. So essentially what we're seeing here is China taking a double hit. They're, ch they're, they're shutting down large swaths of their economy, not providing their people with any type of stimulus. And then of course the goods from the West aren't being bought at the same rate. Am I understanding right. you correctly? Okay, yes, great, absolutely. thank you. So Karthik, back to you and we'll shift over to the EU. On the front pages of every financial newspaper with the Euro threatening to breach parity. So two questions. How much trouble is the EU in? How much trouble is the European economy in? And even more importantly, can the euro survive this crisis? This is one of those bad news, good news questions. So the, so the answer to the first question, uh, how much uh, trouble is the European economy in, is the, is the bad news part. Clearly, uh, you have a situation where the EU is kind of the front lines uh, economically of the, uh, the Russia-Ukraine crisis. You know, inflation has been driven very high in Europe, but to a much larger extent by energy than by demand, which is then leading to a hawkish European, uh, a hawkish ECB, mm -hmm. uh, potentially threatening to hike more than the economy actually justifies in terms of its growth. So that's mm -hmm. bad. It could potentially get worse over the short term, at least. With, and the EU is well, the EU is well behind the U.S. and Canada on interest rate hikes, correct? Oh, absolutely. And um, the, the hawks in the EU, they, um, you know, in Germany, the Netherlands, they want to hike aggressively, looking at headline inflation, which is actually the ECB's uh, formal target, though they've tended to downplay that uh, over the last 10 years. And they're not getting that much, the euro is not getting that much of a boost from it, I think in part because uh, markets recognize that this is, these high interest rates not being spurred by a robust economy per se, uh, but more by the desire just to uh, contract cost push inflation. That said, I mean, the underlying economy does have problems, but, you know, the, the, the sentiment indicators uh, are still north of 50. Unemployment, it's the lowest it's been since the, since the launch of the euro. So there are some positive things there, but that doesn't offset, you know, this, uh, the threat from, uh, from energy prices. Uh, which is going to weigh very substantially. So that's the bad news part. The good news part is the actual integrity of the euro. And I think that's something that where some of the gloom on might be somewhat overstated. I mean, I think that 10 years ago, there was concern about whether the eurozone would survive the last recession. Agreed, uh, yeah. But now, I think the EU as a whole has moved in a direction that makes it more likely that the euro as an entity, the euro as a construction will survive even if the euro drops below parity. And that's a function of, you know, partly of, you know, what Mario Draghi did 10 years ago and what's kind of what the ECB has continued to do since then in terms of signaling that it will not tolerate a widening of 
intra-eurozone spread that has tools to counter that. But even on the fiscal side, the pandemic saw the issuance of the first, you know, of pan-European instruments with money going to single countries to fight the pandemic. And the eurozone, the EU is going to need to spend a lot of money on energy and on defense in coming years as a result of this crisis. And that money is going to be spent both collectively and singly. And there's going to be tolerance for that spending because the EU as a whole recognizes that's necessary. So I'm more optimistic about the EU over the longer term than I am about the euro in the short term. But I think those longer term things do also translate back into the removal of that kind of existential tail risk that dogged the euro for so long. That's great, Karthik. That's very in-depth. We appreciate that. So I guess, you know, we've gone through a lot in this conversation. So, I mean, gentlemen, if there's a couple of big takeaways on where the global economy is right now and where it's going to be at the end of the year and this time next summer, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, you know, clearly the theme here has been a profound restructuring the global economy. Uh, A lot of things are changing and a lot of things are going to change over the year ahead. Uh, What we think is about to happen or, you know, perhaps is underway right now is a narrative shift. Uh, We think that the stories that we tell each other about where the economy is going and how it functions, we think those are changing right now. And and so one of the biggest things that is sort of a big thing for uh, currency markets is that we're very likely to see less worry about a a price shock, less worry about inflation, and more worry about a demand shock. So we might, you know, uh, pivot from concerning ourselves with whether inflation might get out of control to concerning ourselves uh, with whether the economy might... uh, might shrink. Amid all of that, we're very likely to see financial markets underperforming the real economy. So, you know, for the first time in in perhaps decades, uh, we could see the real economy moving ahead, even as financial assets underperform, largely because money is tighter than it has been. And then lastly, perhaps uh, the big thing I I would, you know, kind of underline here that I would be thinking about uh, by this time next year is that the innovation that was unleashed during the pandemic could be lifting productivity and raising living standards by then. So, you know, even as we see a lot of turmoil in the financial markets, a lot of volatility, we could actually be seeing some very, very positive things happening around the world That's in, an excellent the, point. in the real yeah. economy. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think there's, we're not at peak gloom yet, but in terms of the actual operation of the economy, what we've seen, we've seen, we've seen a lot of innovations in technology, but also in terms of fiscal policy. I mean, one of the things that, you know, as I mentioned about Europe, more spending on energy, more spending on defense, we're seeing increased push towards investment. Uh, towards corporate investment, which is one of the things that I think offsets some of the worries about about an imminent recession. So there are good things happening in the underlying economy. And and one other thing I I always think about is that Carl and I are both uh, foreign exchanger traders. And to paraphrase one of our local uh, uh, celebrities in, in California, Joan Didion, it is in the nature of traders that we tell ourselves stories in order to trade. Sometimes you have to kind of abstract the need for storytelling from what's happening underneath it, which I think in this instance, over the course of the next year, uh, might be more positive than we, than we think right now. That was Carl Shimada and Karthik Shankaran of Corpay Cross Borders Currency Research Team. And this has been FinTech in Focus. 
Thank you for tuning in to today's show. If you want to keep up with more news and views, make sure to subscribe wherever you're tuning in from. FinTech and Focus is a bi-monthly podcast written and produced by CorePay, a fleet core company. The opinions expressed in FinTech and Focus are those of our guests only and do not necessarily reflect the views of CorePay or Fleet Core Incorporated. To submit questions or comments or to recommend a topic, please email us at podcast at corepay.com. Thank you very much and have a great day.